Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watt and I am here with Callum Roper. Hello there everyone, welcome to the podcast. Bradley Orsop. Hi folks. And Ollie Warwin. Hello there everyone. Good. And today we are going to be, first of all, discussing the uh, fallout from the latest Labour reshuffle or non-reshuffle, as uh, some people have referred to it. Uh, We'll also be uh, covering some more uh, international politics uh, in the form of the uh, latest bombardment of Gaza. Uh, And we've got a nice uh, feel-good story as well with the... Uh, blocking of an immigration van in Glasgow and the freeing of uh, some people who were imminently about to be unjustly deported, allegedly uh, unjustly deported from the country. Uh, And, uh, of course, as well, we are all uh, looking forward to, perhaps with uh, some trepidation, maybe the uh, next stage of the opening up of the lockdown. We're recording on the 16th of May 2021, uh, and from next Monday, which is tomorrow, of course, um, the pubs will be able to allow people to drink indoors. So for the last few weeks, we have been uh, drinking, meeting people, mixing outside uh, in back gardens. The infection rate doesn't seem to be going up as a consequence of that. So obviously, you have to take into account the fact that the weather is warmer Um, But now the government is saying that we can move that activity indoors. um, And there have been some warnings from the uh, British Medical Association about that, which is the uh, effectively the National Union for Doctors. So we'll be talking about that. Um, But as I say, back to our first story, because we like we like the Labour Party here, but we have some criticisms here and there, constructive, hopefully, uh, uh, criticisms of what's going on. And of course, um, the the biggest story in Labour most recently has been uh, Keir Starmer, leader of the party, uh, says that he would take, before and after, actually, to be fair, he would take full responsibility for the election results, good or bad. Um, Obviously, they weren't particularly great um, uh, across the country. Um, his response to that, though, because uh, normally, I have to say, when someone says, I'm taking full responsibility for something bad happening, it normally means, in British parlance, I resign. Um, but he hasn't resigned. Uh, he decided to uh, attempt to sack his deputy leader, uh, Angela Rayner, who, of course, has her own democratic mandate um, as deputy leader of the party, but she has other positions which are in the leader's gift. Um, at the time, she was the chair of the party, um, which is a position which was really magicked up out of thin air by um, the previous leader, Tony Blair, I think back in 2001, um, for a chap called Charles Clark. Um, he wanted to, it seems, be able to uh, appoint a, a party chair, much like the Conservative leader does um, uh, or did. And uh, then the party kind of pushed back on this and said this doesn't exist in the rule book. So the, what the position has merged into over the last 
20 years or so is basically it's the head of the campaigning unit at the party it's usually the party chair is usually the national campaign coordinator and that is exactly what Angela Rayner was so there's an argument therefore that given that the campaign didn't go particularly well in May uh, that therefore uh, Keir Starmer's holding her to account this is certainly the argument of his allies holding her to account uh, putting someone else in her place that person being Annalise Dodds, who was previously the shadow chancellor. Annalise Dodds, of course, was, uh, according to John McDonnell, uh, put in that position on his recommendation as the outgoing uh, shadow chancellor. So she has said to be quite uh, progressive, possibly even radical um, in her politics. But unfortunately, we haven't really seen much of that over the last year. Um, and again, she has got a lot of stick uh, in the press from from the, the Starmerite uh, party parts of the party, I suppose, uh, for not really being particularly visible. Um, and but uh, is the question is really is that her fault? You know, um, because we know that Keir Starmer has been quite cautious in terms of releasing policy, and policy is really realistically. Uh, the preside of uh, the leader. So maybe she was not uh, given, perhaps she wasn't given the the best opportunity to shine in that role. Um, And then, of course, with her moved on, we now have Rachel Reeves, who, you know, she's probably best known for saying that the Labour Party isn't on the side or shouldn't be on the side of people who are out of work. Um, So I think the it's probably fair to say that the movement is a little bit nervous at the moment about um, this particular person being Shadow Chancellor, the, the, the leading official in charge of our uh, economic policy going forward uh, into the general election. Um, Angela Rayner, just going back to her, she uh, has been given the uh, Chancellor or Shadow Chancellorship of the Duchy of Lancaster. Um, which is sort of a sinecure, it's basically a a, a role which allows the person who holds it to basically do anything that they want to within government or are instructed to do. Um, So she is opposite Michael Gove, which could be a useful position for her, to be fair, in the long run. Um, She was originally supposed to be uh, the the Shadow Minister for Health, which she didn't want. Um, And then... uh, there was, there was. It's rumoured that uh, there was a threat that she could go on the back benches and start planning an alternative leadership campaign, uh, and that would obviously be a threat to Keir Starmer, um, because although she has come in for some criticism from the left herself over the last year, she does still have something of a following, and she could probably claim it back as a very well connected former trade union official, a decent communicator, and a working class lass from the north. Um, so she's definitely a potential threat to him. Um, what was your sort of take on this, uh, on this, Callum? It was, you know, sort of billed as being this, you know, major reshuffle, um, you know, uh, one of uh, a couple of resets we've had now um, from the Labour leader. Um, how did it sort of play out in, 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 from your point of view? It's a pretty uninspiring reshuffle, if that's what we want to call it. 
Um, but ultimately, the the leader has to take responsibility for what happened over the over the last few weeks in terms of the local elections and in terms of um, how the public is feeling towards the Labour Party at the moment. Ultimately, I think that we've got to be looking at what what do people want to see from the Labour Party? And they want to see a party that's giving out policies that are aspirational, but it also has inspirational leaders and members of, of, of the front bench. And I think that the, the current model uh, that we're following doesn't seem to embrace that at all. So we had a, a, policy a policy blitz every so often that was pretty uninspiring. Um, we've been guilty of that in the previous leadership as well to just sort of throw out bundles of, of policies, many of which are very good, but they get lost under one another. They sort of just seem as almost a panic reaction. So we need a, a coherent strategy on how we release policy and actually release policy that fits in with those 10 pledges because the 2017 and 19 manifestos were hugely popular. They were hugely popular amongst members of the public because actually they gave a, a reasonable alternative to the Conservative Party and they gave hope to many people. In terms of the individuals in the on the front bench, I think that the, the leash has to be let a bit looser. I think that actually we need to be embracing a lot of their individual ideas. Annalise Dodds has been massively underused, as, as you alluded to. She is apparently a, a, a quite a radical when it comes to economic policy, and yet we've seen none of this. So actually, I think that it also helps share that burden out from the leader of the... Um, if the public don't just see a prime minister in waiting, but a government in waiting, because ultimately those are the people that are going to be running departments day to day and be accountable for those uh, issues that come up and those policy briefs. So I think that what we have to do is, is in turn around, we have to look at ourselves and we have to say, we need some radical policy. We need to be speaking about the issues that matter to people. But we also need those leaders in our shadow cabinet and our party that are going to be out there in the public. It's not just going to be the Keir Starmer show, because as we found out, that's rather uninspiring for quite a lot of people. Yes, he's a, he's a very well-spoken uh, former lawyer. He's certainly got a lot of experience when it comes to public speaking. But this, um, this approach that he takes is very cautious, and actually we, we need a bit of fight, and we need a bit of grit about how we t take on the Tories, because like it or not, the Tories are rather popular at the moment. People like what they're saying, partly because they're saying what we've been saying for quite some time now. But let's let's take another step up then. Let's say, well, you like this. Well, actually, there's that's just the beginning. Because when you look at 2017, it was actually quite a mild offering compared to some of the fantastic ideas that we've got coming out of the party now in terms of some of the ideas that we're getting coming from our activists, some of our uh, MPs are leading projects that are really trying to drive that policy onwards so we can go to the next step. Certainly when it looks uh, to the recovery from the pandemic, but also when we're looking to our green recovery that we want to be pushing, the amount of jobs that could be created and actually looking to create them in green industries. So many areas that have missed out on investment over the last 20, 30, 40 years serve to benefit from the plans that we have formulated. The um, the Green New Deal, as we like to call it, that was um, first uh, drawn up by Rebecca Long-Bailey and her team, amongst others, was actually really progressive. And it was a great foundation to build a new economy that would not just serve the people, but the planet. 
And I think that that's what we need to be offering. And just that aspiration, that inspiration is exactly what Labour needs at the moment. And it certainly needs a big boot up the arse, if you ask me. Yeah, boot up the arse. That's uh, for strong words there. Do you agree with that, Bradley? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's clear now, if it wasn't before, uh, you know, 100% clear, Keir Starmer and the people around him haven't got a fucking clue what they're doing at this point. They, they just don't get it. Yeah, and the likes of Mandleton um, and, and, and others of that sort of ilk that, that uh, are advising the party at this point, it's not their world anymore. They don't understand that. Um, you know, Tony Blair won his landslide general election victory. It was almost 25 years ago now, actually. If you, you know, 97, that, that was 24 years ago. It's not that world anymore. The conditions that led to that election victory don't, don't exist anymore. The world is radically different to, to, to what it was then. Um, but, but the likes of Mandelson j- just don't get it. They don't understand that. And they don't. They have, they have no concept of, of what it takes to deal with the issues that the world is facing and that the country is facing, the local communities are facing. And... But but there's an arrogance there that, that that you know because Blair won an election you know won a string of elections um, a couple of decades ago that therefore we have we have to repeat almost verbatim maybe a, a slight modernising uh, that that program and it, it just fails to understand the, the changes that the, that the world has been through since then um, uh, you know I mean it's it's clear it's very clear if Starmer is in the Labour Party at the next general election we're, we're not. Get, getting anywhere close to a majority in Parliament. I mean, that, I mean that's an enormous challenge for anyone. Who, you know, even if we had a, a, a you know radical r- radical left leader who was really inspiring and engaging on a personal level and, and had a fantastic policy platform behind them and all the rest of it, even then it would be a bloody hard fight to, to get a parliament a convincing parliamentary majority. Um, but under this leadership, I mean, it's, it's not going to happen, is it? it? It's clear if we're serious about winning the next election, Starmer has to go. Um, um, and some time before then to give them to give that leader, um, you know, time time to lay out their agenda and and, and be known by the by the country. Uh, whether he should go right now, you know, there is the argument of give give him enough time, give him enough sh- uh, a fair enough shot at the job. Um, like fine, like uh, if he wants to stay around for for another, you know, six twelve months, um. Fine, but I think the longer he's in the party, the more damage that will be done at this point. And 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 it's not and it's not just about Starmer, is it? You know, there was that really sort of like toe curling interview he did. Um, I think it was with the BBT, um, uh, maybe last Sunday or Saturday. You know, where he was asked, you know, what, what's your response to, to these election defeats? You know, what what are you going to do about it? And he and he kept talking in the vaguest of vaguest political terms about having having a vision and, and having a conversation and convincing people. And he was he was. They tried to draw him again and again on what what is that vision? You know, give us an idea. Of, you know, we're not we're not expecting you to, to hand us a manifesto now, but you know, give us a give us a flavour of, of what you're talking about. He couldn't do it. He couldn't give anything. Couldn't even give any you know in the vaguest of nods really, um, except for platitudes about listening to people and and taking and taking the you know the conversation out there to people and showing people who've changed, but no, no real indication of tangibly politically what 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 does that mean for a policy platform. Um, so yeah, he, he is terrible, I think, at this point, and and he's none of the things we were told he was going to be in, in terms of electable and all the rest of it. But any anyone from his political tradition, I think, is 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 going to suffer and is going to struggle. Um, you know, there, there's like you know maybe a, a more Blair-esque sort. Yeah, you know, Blair was a fairly charismatic and, and efficient political operator when he came to the leadership. 
you know, so okay, maybe someone of his caliber could could, could have maybe uh, reduced the the negative impact of those results. Um, but I think you know, they still would have faced the fundamental problem of of you know, uh, uh, well, in this case, really, pretty much a lack of a policy platform that anyone could really discern or identify. Um, or, or, you know, even if they're a bit more put together, it's a policy platform that doesn't really speak to people in those communities and, and doesn't really offer them enough of a tangible break from, from what we've had. And, you know, we're in the bizarre situation where the, the Tories are seen as the party of change in those communities. They've been, they've been in government for 11, you know, 11 uh, going on 12 years. Uh, a lot of the problems in these communities are primarily because of conservative governments and their austerity agenda, um, but they somehow managed to paint themselves as the party of change and the party that, that's going to bring renewal to those communities. Um, and without a really radical, clear break from the status quo, that's going to, you know, how, how are we going to speak to those communities? How are we going to change that? And I mean, I mean, even the reshuffle, even watch the reshuffle. The reshuffle became another story about how. Um, Labour infighting and, and Keir Starmer as an aptitude as a leader. So he, he, he can't even reshuffle his own bloody cabinet without without it becoming a negative press for the party. Um, so yeah, he needs to go, but it's not just him. It's, it's not just his fault. It, it's that tradition of the party and the people around him. All of it needs to go. The question, I suppose, for the left is what replaces it? Um, who, who are the clear candidates from the, from the left that are going to step up into that void if, if we have a leadership contest? Um, uh, is there anyone with the, with the charisma, the gravitas, the intellectual backing um, and the experience to, to take the top job? Uh, you know, who, who would that be? I don't know. The, the person that immediately springs to mind is John McDonnell. He's, you know, he, he is probably very tainted in a lot of the public size because of his, his very close connections to the Corbyn project. So I, I, I don't know. You know, it's very clear Simon needs to go if we're going to win, but who, who replaces him, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a good question. I and mean, obviously the left is one the left is sort of pondering because there isn't a, a natural successor um, in, in, uh, in any ways. I mean, I could imagine... For example, someone like Richard Bergen would probably quite happily uh, run, um, but he would probably lose because at the end of the day, the Labour Party membership, as we saw in 2016, don't like seeing uh, the leader being challenged, uh, and in the 80s as well, of course, uh, with Tony Benn. Um, that whoever engaged in that would be seen as a, uh, as a wrecker. Um, What's your uh, take on it, Ollie? And then I'm going to read uh, something interesting that's come through from um, Tony Blair, of all people. Um, he's written a piece for the for the New Statesman, uh, which is quite interesting. It's just his name makes it my skin crawl, quite honestly. Um, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. I mean, not really. He, he kind of belongs in, in, in the dustbin of history, but he's becoming increasingly irrelevant and figures from, you know, 20 years ago, as Bradley was saying, you know, they're giving Peter Mandelson like power over the Labour Party and, and Keir Starmer is, is being advised by him pretty much. And it's, it's a bit, it's a bit scary actually. Um, because as Bradley said, we, we just don't live in that time anymore and we have some very serious challenges um, up ahead and I don't know that the the leadership of the Labour Party, the current leadership, are, are up for it really. Um, as, as as we've said, um, you know, Keir was presented as a, a very politically um, astute figure 
um, you know, with f forensic analysis, and and he can hold the the government to account better than anyone. But that's that's clearly not the case, and he's just demonstrating time and time again how badly um, he operates politically. And I, I don't think it's going to get any better. So yeah, we need an alternative. There are no alternatives that I can think of um, apart from a few young uh, socialist MPs. But it, it's certainly difficult, isn't it? Um, difficult. But I, I don't know. I, I just don't think we should be listening to Tony Blair and, and Peter Mandelson. I think the only time we should be giving Tony Blair is time in the Hague. So yeah, go on and, and we'll hear what he has to say for it. Well, I, I only mention it because, of course, we know now that uh, Peter Mandelson, he was initially um, Tony Blair's right-hand man in the early days of, of New Labour, um, is is now basically Keir Starmer's chief advisor. Um, it said that he was signing off on all of the statements from shadow ministers and uh, and seems to have masterminded the strategy there. Um, I was actually told by someone who was who was working on the Hartlepool campaign because, of course, um, uh, because of course Mandelson was the MP for Hartlepool uh, for some time during the New Labour years, um, and uh, he said that uh, whenever he knocked on the door, he said uh, Paul Williams, the candidate, uh, is the best candidate for Labour since me. Um, and uh, when he saw a he saw a slow cooker in the committee rooms, uh, and he said, "What's that?" And someone explained it to him, and he said, "Oh, you have to understand, I haven't been living in the real world for twenty years." So, this is a man who isn't really in touch with reality. That might have been a joke. That might have been tongue in cheek, but it's uh, he, he's certainly. Very strange. Bear in mind as well that Mandelson himself was also sacked by Tony Blair twice. Um, so maybe, you know, if Keir Starmer's wanting to be like Tony Blair, maybe that's what he's planning to do, by the way, um, is, uh, is eventually to sack him and just basically completely uh, repeat history. Um, but Tony Blair, he seems to still have some influence in the sense that as I say, people like Keir Starmer still listen to him, even though uh, they probably shouldn't. Um, uh, but what's he saying? He said, <clears throat> let, me just find the, let me just find the quote. He says, uh, the progressive problem is that in an era where people want change in a changing world and a fairer, better and more prosperous future, the radical progressives aren't sensible and the sensible aren't radical. The choice is therefore between those who fail to inspire hope and those who inspire as much fear as hope. So the running is made by the new radical left with the moderates dragging along behind, uncomfortably mouthing a watered down version of the left's policies while occasionally trying to dig in their heels to stop further sliding towards the alienation of the center. Uh, the result is that today progressive politics has an old-fashioned economic message of big states tax and spend, which, other than the spending part, which the right can do anyway, is not particularly attractive. 
This is combined with a new fashion's social-slash-cultural message around extreme identity anti-police politics, which for large swathes of people is voter-repellent. Defund the police may be the left's most damaging political slogan since the dictatorship of the proletariat. It leaves the right with an economic message which seems more practical and a more powerful cultural message around defending flag, family and fireside traditional values. To stop it off, the right evinces a pride in their nation, while parts of the left seem embarrassed by the very notion. So clearly there there is that, that old uh, obsession, if you like, with trying to find the centre ground of politics, which probably doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but know, where, that... where's the where's the question of, of what the actual solution to problems is? Where where is that question? Because the reason people you know people are like, oh, you know fuck the police, let, let's get rid of. There's there's a proper analysis of societal problems behind the defund the police movement, and it's that actually our police force is always the best. You know, forced to to be dealing with homelessness, with with, with drug addiction, um, you know, with with you know, actually, there's various things that maybe sh- shouldn't shouldn't be dealt with at all by society. You know, in terms of should should um, should prostitution be illegal? Should uh, should do we need heavily militarized border police? All the, so there's all those sorts of questions that the defense of the police movement is actually critically looking at, saying either some of these things don't need to be policed at all, or Actually, yeah. If we're if we're going to deal with them as society, then the police force isn't the best appropriate mechanism to do that. So let's use some of their funding and, and apply it to to you know social services, to, to youth hostels, to homelessness programs, yeah, you know, those sorts of things instead. So, like, fine, you can have a debate about the electoral success of, of various policy pledges that come that come from uh, I suppose what they would term the radical left. There's a question of how how radical some of these ideas are that get lumped into that. Um, Fine, there's an electoral argument around it, but before you have that, you need to figure out what the solutions are. And yeah, no one's saying we don't talk to, to, to voters and we don't talk to communities about what those solutions might be. But at the end of the day, a party's primary job is to analyse the problems in society and come up with, with, with solutions that, that will work and that are fair. Uh, the, the question of whether they're going to win votes or not is, to me, a secondary question. And, and a lot of that comes down to what you prioritise in your policy platform as you communicate that to people. Because surely some of our job has got to be to, to convince people to change the public mood. And you know, Blair did that himself. Blair took a message out to voters and worked to convince them. Now, I don't agree with all the methods that he used to do that, you know, caught, courting uh, Murdoch Press and all the rest of it. And obviously don't agree with a lot of the, the conclusions he came to on his policy platform. But he, he, there's got to somewhere along the line be a question of, what, what are the problems in society and what are the actual solutions? The electoral stuff, to, for me, co- comes later. That's a secondary question. Yeah, I, I find it find it interesting. What his, um, his Tony Blair's solution is, and I'll, I'll give you an anecdote about something I've experienced recently as well. Um, he says, why, why do uh, progressives find it hard to rise to the, cha- the modern challenges, basically? Um it is for the same reason that it was so hard for Labour to abandon Clause 4 um, and the commitment to mass nationalisation in the 1980s and 90s. There was a confusion of abiding values with outdated mechanisms, a failure to grasp the nature of contemporary social and economic challenge and the deep psychological reluctance to let go of the outdated past. It means discarding shibboleths. 
This new world doesn't require a big state per se, but a strategic and active one which is good at solving problems and good at promoting social inclusion and economic dynamism at the same time. Um, it will be a challenge to all those who don't adapt to change, including big business with a conventional centralised mentality, or trade unions which can't get to grips with mobilising workers in the new economy. A myriad of small firms and the self-employed will be central, not peripheral to the future. And it goes on. Um, uh, it's the same with uh, uh, public services. The way we teach and provide medical care and education will change dramatically and therefore old ways of working will decline. New forms of social ownership will be needed to tackle the housing crisis. Solutions will often be practical, some more associated with the traditional left thinking, but some more with modern centre-right thinking. It will require steadfast adherence to values, but a complete agnosticism as to the means of implementing them. Um, I.e., you know, you, you you say you've got values, but you don't necessarily have them. Is how I'd interpret that. But the the interesting thing is, I, I, I and I just pick up on this because he mentions tackling the housing crisis. Um, obviously, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, I, I'm a new councillor. Um, in uh, district authority, district authorities have responsibility for housing. It's one of our biggest responsibilities, in fact. Um, I think the, the budget for the housing budget may actually be bigger than the general fund. Um, and, you know, in Lincoln, we've got uh, 7,000 properties run by the council and so on. And the interesting thing is that, uh, unfortunately, a couple of Tories got elected in Lincoln. So I've been doing this induction with them. And they were quite critical, actually, of right to buy. Um, and this is actually apparently quite common among Tories who are in district authorities, that they don't like right to buy because they have the direct experience of trying to find people you know, somewhere to live because it's a human thing at the end of the day and their elected officials, they want to do, presumably some of them want to do right by their constituents. That's much harder to do if you don't have a large stock of social housing, which was taken away effectively by Margaret Thatcher. Um, and interestingly, they didn't seem to understand that the way that was originally sold to people was that, you know, those houses would be sold and the money that was used from sale would be used to fund more social housing. In practice, the council only actually gets to keep a third of the money and only has a limited amount of time to use it to spend on housing. So in practice, a lot of that money ends up not being used and going straight to the government. But that's a slight uh, sideways step. My point is that the, the zeitgeist of uh, British politics uh, certainly at a local level, um, is that there's a developing consensus, uh, cross-party consensus, arguably, um, that right to buy was uh, an incredibly bad idea, and actually you do need state solutions. Um, and it's interesting that Tony Blair, who, let's be honest, does seem to have the ear of Keir Starmer, um, is arguing that we should still be pulling away from democratic state solutions, um, while at the same time the Conservatives, as we've seen with Boris Johnson, for instance, are moving more towards having uh, a, a state approach uh, to to social uh, to social problems. Um, 
albeit from a very authoritarian point of view. I mean, would that be um, would that be a, an accurate way of describing the the current slide in in politics, Bradley? I'm I'm gonna, gonna just going to throw that back to you, if I may. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we need to be very careful. There's, there's a lot there's a lot of talk of the new the new conservatism of, of Johnson and it's some call it the Northern conservatism. You know, particularly the, the local politicians adopting in those red wall seats that they're winning off Labour. I mean, I think I think the jury's still out on on what the actual impacts of, of any, any changes in, in policy and, and funding, particularly for those red wall seats. The, the jury's out on what impact that will actually have on on those people. Um, I, I mean, I, I think in general the Conservative Party is still wedded to to. Um, you know, g- general, you know, defence of, of the capitalist system. Um, ne- neoliberalism for some of those Tories, I suppose there's some elements in the Tory party that wouldn't necessarily be neoliberal. Um, but what, what I don't see is, is a transformative politics from the Tory party. I think, I think the changes are exaggerated and overrated a little bit at the moment. Um, I, I think probably what we're going to see, particularly in those red wall seats, is, is a veneer of investment from the government. You know, there might be select projects that, that there are investments in, that um, in fairness might have some positive impacts to those communities, um, but I think that there will be all sorts of questions around port barrel politics of, of the fact that they'll be targeted in certain seats in certain areas for for electoral purposes. Um, I I don't think we should kid ourselves that we're going to be seeing some sort of um, you know grand transformative agenda from the Conservative government that that goes in line with with what a lot of people on the left would want to see. Um, obviously, we're not seeing that from Labour at the moment either. Um, but but yeah, I I don't I don't think we should mistake this for some sort of uh, massive change in 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 Tory policy. I think there's definitely change in rhetoric um, from the austerity years. I think there there will be a sprinkling of, of investment opportunities in certain key seats. Um, but I'm very sceptical as to whether we're going to see a wholesale um, reversal of austerity. Well, that that's an inter- that's a very good point when you say key seats as well, because um, as we've seen uh, the um, who was the mayor for the Hartlepool area? Um, I, I, I forget what his name is now, but um, oh, I know, Tory I know mayor won the free Yeah, he got something like seventy percent of the vote, and um, one of his key policy platforms was uh, taking the local airport into public ownership. Now, the contrast between that sort of Toryism and the Tories who, in the nineteen eighties, you know, my my mother worked for British Aerospace back in the 80s um, and her local MP, when that factory was shutting down, um, didn't lift a finger to stop it from happening. Um, you know, he just said, well, it's market forces. So now this we're, we're sitting almost 40 years on um, and it's very clear that the Conservatives are quite willing to basically try and bribe the electorate. Um, by saying, you know, vote Tory and we might actually, uh, you know, give you this this monument or, or, or um, you know, some sort of big shiny project to make it to say, hey, look, we're investing in your area. Um, it's very uh, sort of 19th century or not even 19th century, it's 18th century style politics, um, you know, with them also uh, trying to uh, get rid of the more progressive voting systems as well in mayoral elections as well it's um does feel like they're sort of uh regressing our democracy and, and making it somewhat more corrupt 
um, typical Tories, I suppose. Um, and yes, no, I, I entirely agree. I think that uh, Keir Starmer probably should stop listening to, uh, to to people like Tony Blair and actually maybe wake up and realise we're in the 21st century, we're in a period of crisis um, and we actually do need some radical thinking. And actually, by the way, you know, um, I'm not a huge believer that we need state solutions for everything. By the way, I think housing cooperatives are part of the solution. Uh, for instance, um, cooperatives in general are part of the solution to making our economy um, a lot more equitable, functional and uh, fairer as well. Um, even if you don't have to be necessarily uh, a radical socialist to believe that, you can look at the German economy, um, which you know, isn't, certainly isn't perfect. It's not uh, what we would necessarily like it to be, but it's a lot more progressive than uh, what we have in this country. But uh, we do have uh, it, it, what we do have on, uh, in, in this country um, is uh, we, we do have quite a strong you know, radical movement um, and uh, that hasn't really gone away. And I think I'll I think we'll talk now about the, the, the feel good story that we've had, uh, which is uh, the immigration van in Glasgow. Uh, this is the story you introduced me to me earlier, Callum. So do you want to lead on that one? Yeah, so this is uh, a story that came out this week and uh, in Glasgow, um, the city's quite well known for its uh, progressive politics. Um, the people of Glasgow seem to have that really strong sense of community at times and they, and they come out and they back, um, they back each other no matter where they're from, if you're a Glaswegian, we're, we're here for you is essentially the, is essentially the ethos there. And um, so this week, two Indian nationals were due to be deported um, by the Home Office. They were in the back of the van. They were being driven away. And this large crowd assembled to stop the van. Um, hundreds of people surrounded the van, um, saying that, that refugees are welcome here, uh, migrants are welcome here. And it's a real statement from the city of, of Glasgow. It's a big two fingers up to the hostile environment that we've seen over the last 11 years and prior. It's a, it's a, I mean, for me, it's, it's a real statement that actually, <clears throat> excuse me, working together, communities can come out and they can defend one another, whatever issues they're facing whether it be deporting members of our community completely unjustly, whether it be attacking our uh, our um, shops and our town centres, whether it be we need to defend each other on the picket line because people are, are employing fire and rehire um, against people. And I think that this is a real testament to exactly what can happen when the wedge issues that get put into communities don't succeed, when the Tory policies actually fail to split people apart making our neighbors our enemy is exactly what we should not be doing and the people of glasgow have shown that and by coming out in solidarity with these two men hundreds of people have shown and inspired people across the country that communities are so much stronger when they're together communities stick up for one another and i'd like to see this this uh, repeated across the country when there is injustice in our communities people get out on the streets people take direct action 
and they actually stand up for one another. And I think it's just a, an amazing story. Um, and I'm so glad that it was actually covered in the media and not ignored um, as it could quite easily have done be. Yeah, and um, it, it's um, it's about people being willing to put themselves, um, unfortunately, often putting themselves somewhat at risk, not just of arrest, but in physical uh, danger as well. Um, we shouldn't have to do that, but it's good that um, there are people who are willing to do it. And if there's lots of people who you can take with you, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to succeed. Uh, Ollie, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to say um, it, it's not necessarily something that can really, uh, maybe it's just me, I can't really imagine something like that happening um, in, in England. Um, or maybe it's just where I come from, I don't know. But um, that that solidarity, I think it's, it's really important. Um, and we don't have enough of that. And it, this is a yet another example of, of um, you know, very recent direct action working, which is great. Um, but Scotland aren't... Um, they don't have um, power over their own immigration system. And it's something that a lot of um, uh, SNP and nationalists are kind of trying to capitalize on. And if, if they don't want to have um, yet yeah, this, this hostile environment, as Callum mentioned, um, to be ruled over by, you know, really hostile, aggressive um, Westminster policies. Um, I think, you know, I think if they, if they want to move away from that, then and they can, uh, it's politically viable for them to move away from that, then I think they should go for it, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's quite impressive. Uh, and actually, are you saying then that it's, maybe it's linked to this uh, sort of anti-Westminster sentiment that's quite justifiable, I suppose, um, from people in Glasgow, do you think it's linked with that? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's all kind of um, yeah. That, that's the feeling at the moment, isn't it? Um, with with the S and P increasing their vote share and in the question of independence, kind of uh, looking more and more likely in the in the future. So I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But it's certainly quite interesting developments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's uh, that's uh, brilliant work. From Glasgow. Hopefully we'll see it uh, elsewhere as well. Um, we said we'd touch on uh, Gaza as well. Um, sadly, um, we have seen uh, the another, yet another bombardment of what is effectively the world's largest open prison, um, the uh, Gaza Strip. Um, as usual, we've seen uh, a few rockets sent out by Hamas, which is the um, Islamist government in charge of uh, in charge of Gaza, um, against Israel. Israel is generally pretty good at blocking those, but they have killed people. Um, in response to that, um, Israel has responded with enormous force, um, and it all it did all start with. Um, Basically, Israeli police storming the Al-Aqsa Al Mosque, rather, um, in Jerusalem, um, uh, which was quite shocking, really, because you know it, it's one of the holiest places for that faith. Um, and uh, this this seems to happen sort of every four or five years. It's almost 
like clockwork um that israel will just decide to bombard um what's left of palestine uh, the interesting thing on this occasion is they have uh, decided to blow up the headquarters in gaza of al jazeera and the associated press which is unusual um to to attack journalists mostly western journalists um it's a, it's a strange choice. Al Jazeera is uh, funded, I think, by the Qatari government, um, but the Associated Press is much more international, um, much more universally respected. So it's an odd choice. Um, do you think that uh, this will change perceptions of, of the tactics that are currently being used by the Israeli government, Callum? Oh, that's a tough one because I, part of me wants to say yes. I feel that there's been a, a tangible shift in attitudes over the last week or so. I think that the incredible injustice that's being done is now being seen far more for what it is than it ever has been. Um, but I, part of me seems to still think that just by attacking the, the, the Associated Press and Al Jazeera, um, which was a premeditated attack, um, they were the the building was phoned up prior to it being bombed, so we know it was not an accidental attack, um, which I think is one of the most sinister things about it. Because when we when we see any sides in a, in a in a conflict attacking the press, we know that they don't want their actions to be seen. We know that they don't want their actions to be reported. So if it really was um, as as the uh, IDF and the Israeli government present it, a complete defensive. Um, a, a defensive manoeuvre or a set of manoeuvres in, in bombing Gaza, then they would be very open about that. But the fact that the press has been attacked is incredibly concerning. And it, it does show that, that far darker side to the situation. But I, I think that potentially we could see a shift in how this is presented. But again, if you look at quite a lot of the mainstream media coverage um, up, to, up to date, it's it's very much being presented that this is a very equal conflict between two equal foes when actually it's it's completely imbalanced in favor of the the Israeli state so it's it's concerning what's happened it's not particularly surprising um, but we can only hope that we're actually starting to see the beginning of a political shift in attitudes towards the the actions by the by the Israeli government yeah, it's, it's pretty clear that the international community, um, which to be fair often just means the West, but I, I mean the whole of the United Nations really needs to do something to, to stop this regular mass killing effectively. And as I say, it is, you know, it's important to note, as I say, that you know the, the Palestinian rockets, the Hamas rockets, whatever you want to call them, Yes, they do kill people. They often kill children. They are indiscriminate. Children, of course, have nothing to do with uh, the conflict at all. Neither do the Palestinian kids who frequently get um, shot by the IDF, even when there isn't a bombardment going on. Um, and of course, uh, it's the practice of the Israeli Defense Forces to uh, phone up, as you describe, these uh, apartment buildings, office buildings, and make sure they're evacuated before they actually bomb them. But of course, people have still lost their homes 
uh, their livelihoods and so on in the process of that happening. Um, so it's 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 pretty um, sad to see. Um, do you see? Do you think that there's going to be a shift, Bradley, um, as a consequence of this? I mean, there was in 2016, the last time um, there was a bombardment like this. Um, you did, I think, start to see a shift in in, in public attitudes. Um, it became a, a lot more obvious what was happening in Palestine, a lot more visible um, in in the social media age. Do you think that this will? Uh, change things further i mean uh, i certainly hope so but you know if you if you look at the response of our own government so far it, it's not exactly encouraging um i i mean things only change when the international community gets serious about sanctions on israel i think that that that's the only way that you know when real economic pressure is put, put on israel that, that's the only sort of way to start advancing um any any real change i think um you know, in in the way that you you saw in in South Africa, so I, I think, yeah, there, there there needs there needs to be you know I think I think governments need to really seriously answer the question of what of why there there aren't stricter sanctions on Israel now. What why is our government and um, not not imposing sanctions on Israel as a, as a response to this? And um, you know what what why why are we not doing that? I, I don't understand what possible moral justification there is for not doing that. I've, I will always argue that it's um, it's geopolitical um, in the sense that you've got this, that Israel is essentially a vassal state for the United States. Um, it is smack bang in the middle of the Middle East. It's near the Suez Canal and it's useful to have this heavily militarized ally um, in that position um, as, an, as an effective airstrip, basically. Um, and that's why uh, America is uh, somewhat reluctant to criticize when this sort of things happen. And much like with Saudi Arabia as well, America could do an awful lot. The UK could do a lot uh, to stop the killing um, in these conflicts. There are geopolitical reasons why uh, they refuse to do so, which are absolutely nothing to do really with religion and culture. It is for some people. Um, but the, the real economic reason, uh, economic and political reasons, uh, are its geographic position, proximity to resources, and um, strategic areas uh, of communication and commerce, like the Suez Canal. Um, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Um, but I mean, with uh, with us having just gone through an international pandemic, I think that there are going to be. Uh, changes to the way the world is governed as a consequence of that. Um, we do have a, a, a somewhat more forward-thinking president in the United States on that level. So if we get uh, more internationalization of global institutions that are stronger in some areas, uh, maybe we will see uh, a zeitgeist in the international community that deals wants to deal with conflicts like this. Uh, as well. Um, maybe I'm being uh, overly optimistic. Um, do you think I'm be do you think I'm being naive? Um, what, what's Biden's response been so far on this? I think I well, it's been fairly 
muted, I want to say. Yeah, I, I, I mean, if anyone knows that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've, I've not seen any significant shift in policy towards Israel from, from America um, so far um, as a response to this. So, I mean, I, I certainly hope you're right, but I, um, I am also hesitant to pin too much hope on Biden. I mean, by all means, some of the things he's done in office going in, especially in contrast to Trump, have, have been positive and, and, and will have positive impacts both in America and around the world. But I, but I am hesitant to, to pin too much hope on him, especially on the, on the issue of Israel-Palestine. Um, I think there's a real um, deep-seated um, support for Israel within American politics. Um, and I, I question whether Biden is the one that's, that's going to break with that, but maybe I'll be wrong. Yeah, I, I think what I was saying is that there's because there's a shift in other areas, it could... It could, it could eventually uh, influence uh, the, the the development of a stronger UN as a consequence. Um, it, it's not something that's going to happen now, um, unfortunately, because I, I, he is he is unfortunately I think uh, a hawk when it comes to uh, international international politics. Um, and the, the, but there is some mounting pressure coming on it, it gone, coming on him as well. Don't forget that the left is, the left in America is probably stronger than it has been for decades, possibly ever. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's. Uh, I'm trying to kind of come to a sort of positive conclusion here. I know it's very difficult with something um, as serious as this. Um, but we'll just have to see. I think we do have to, you know, be standing with our Muslim and Arab brothers and sisters, and uh, and just hoping that eventually our governments will listen to us and and stop stop other people killing people far away. Uh, Ollie. Um, I think the story of positivity in this is it is as visible as as, as it ever been. As Callum says on social media, there's a there's a shift. I think, um, or I hope certainly, but there seems to be a shift, um, and it, it's it's almost like the younger generation are waking up to this, um, and they're seeing this. And you know, they've just been through the past few years. We've had um, you know climate protests. We've had Black Lives Matter. We've had a, a national uh, an international pandemic. And it's been incredibly tough. And, you know, they've seen the kind of um, systematic oppression which has been uh, put on the, the world's poorest, um, to, to, to kind of state it bluntly. Um, and, you know, they've seen maybe what's going on in, in uh, the Middle East with Israel and Palestine. And they've seen, um, hopefully, like they've been able to break the, the bias which has been um so instrumental in the media for the past however many decades uh, going all the way back to the foundation of the, the state of israel um so you know I, I think i think there is a shift i i am positive about that i think yeah well on that positive note um i think we'll we'll end it there thank you very much ollie um Thank you for listening. Uh, my name's been Callum Watt, uh, and it's goodbye 
from me, and it's goodbye from Bradley. Bye, folks. See you again next time. And Callum. Thanks for listening. Amongst the doom and gloom, there is still reasons to be hopeful. And from Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Free Palestine. Mm -hmm. And join a union. See you next time. <laughs>